Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. So we're here this afternoon with maestro Clay Couturio and uh, president and executive director Lori Garvey. And we're talking about the April 15th, 61st season finale for the symphony. And it, it is uh, going to be an exciting program. Thank you all. So Maestro, you want to tell us a little bit about the program and, and what we can look forward to? Absolutely. I'm really excited. As I know the musicians are, uh, this program is worthy of a season finale. It's really going to end the season on a big note. Uh, we've got four of the perhaps most famous composers in the repertoire. And uh, it's the composers are Berlioz and Ravel, Richard Strauss, and Johannes Brahms. And so I'll briefly go through each work that these composers wrote that's on this program. Uh, we open the concert with Berlioz, and it's his overture to Benvenuto Cellini. So Berlioz is really well known for his, his biggest piece, uh, that is, is Symphony Fantastique. And it's, it's monumental, it has a big Dies Irae in it, and it's, it's, it, it helped him become popular. He wrote it in about 1830. And I always think about this with Berlioz. Uh, everyone thinks he was way after Beethoven. Beethoven's kind of the benchmark in the, uh, of, of, of the symphony orchestra. And Berlioz's music sounds so wild, it sounds so modern compared to even Beethoven. And Beethoven lived 1770 to 1827, but Berlioz is 1803 through 1869. So Beethoven was uh, alive. I mean, he had 24 years of life uh, when Ber uh, Berlioz was born. So they really do overlap. And to me, it's amazing when you hear both works of both composers that they actually did live for a little bit during the same lifetime. Um, but like I said, uh, his big piece, Symphony of Fantastique, was in 1830, and he's primarily known for that, and uh, a lot of overtures to operas. Now, a lot of his operas maybe were not very popular or did not as popular as Symphony Fantastique, but the overtures were so creative uh, with melody and with orchestration that they have really survived. They're, they're, those are a lot of the staples of his, of his output. And this particular one is called Benvenuto Cellini. And Benvenuto Cellini was uh, a great 16th century sculptor and a goldsmith. And um, you would not think that Berlioz didn't care for Italy with all the other works that he, he wrote. Uh, but, but he didn't, maybe it was because he was French and then maybe there's a little bit of rivalry there or not, but he did a lot of themes based on, on Italy. And this is just one of them. Uh, but what's great about this overture is, uh, like I had mentioned before, just the orchestration, it, it starts off with just a huge bombastic introduction. Now in classical music, often the introduction is a little slow, a little pompous, maybe or slow, and then it goes into a fast section. But this starts right off the bat, boom, right out there, fast, lots of notes. And then you get the main theme of the overture, which is slow. So it's kind of the opposite. And that's what uh, 
you know, a lot of music is based on form and the great composers know how to break form a little bit, but make it their own and make that's what makes it creative. And in this case, the main theme starts slow and he starts to develop it. And then there's another fast section. And then at the towards the end, he combines the slow theme with the fast bombastic music from the very beginning on top of each other. It becomes very contrapuntal, like a, in a way like a Bach fugue and to, to a big, big close. And it's a great opener. It's, it's about 12 minutes or so, and it's just a wonderful way to open the concert. I forgot to mention, by the way, that the, of the four pieces, the first three are on the first half, and they're all orchestra alone. Then they're orchestra uh, show pieces. And then the second half is uh, a concerto, which we'll get to in a little bit. So the second piece is by another French composer, Maurice Ravel, and it's called Alvarada del Gracioso. And that means morning song of the jester. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But uh, how this piece came about was Ravel was in a musical club and uh, they, they liked to talk about music. This was even before he was really famous. And they liked to talk about music and go to concerts. They couldn't just go to YouTube and listen and then talk. They had to actually go to concerts, which I highly recommend. Um, and this club, like I said, they talked about music and they were, uh, they were big on Debussy's music, another French composer. And they would go to his opera, Peleus and Melisande, as much as they could, as many concerts as they could, and talk about it and other pieces by Debussy. They were not as big fans of, of Richard Wagner. It's just a, it's a different, in, in the writing of music, it's just a different route as where Debussy went. So it it's, can be personal preference, of course. Um, but like I said, he was a member of this club, and he was up for what's called the Prix de Rome, which was a big award given to by the French government to promising young artists that helped them, basically a scholarship or the, uh, an award to help keep living, right? The artists have to live. And uh, he was up for this award several times, never won, which to me, looking back in many hundreds of years later, or a hundred years later, it's it's amazing to me because we think of Ravel as this great composer, which he is, but he struggled just like everybody else. And he never won that award. In fact, one of the members of this club he was in was a, was a critic and he, he, went to the French government and said, how can this be, uh, you know, everything's rigged, how could this, and things like that. Um, but it just goes to show, even with success, there's always uh, what, if you want to call this failure by not getting this award, I wouldn't, but it, tough times along the way, that's what makes life. So uh, he was in this club and he revered all the members of the club and he decided to write some piano pieces. And one of them, uh, a group of pieces was called Mirrors. And within that, a movement was this Alvarada del Gracioso. A lot of, Ravel was a wonderful pianist and he would write pieces for piano often and then make them into orchestra pieces. He would orchestrate it. And this is one of them. One of the movements was uh, this Alvarada del Gracioso. And it means morning song of the jester. And what that means is, uh, the morning song would be a, a, a man who is a cavalier who was spent uh, the evening uh, talking to his beloved, his woman, all, all night talking to her and would have to go off to war the next morning. And before he went, he would sing this song 
to her before he left, but he would always have a lookout man. And the lookout man was the funny guy, the jester, just to make sure everything was safe and no one was looking in. And that's what this this was. And that's where you get Alvarado del Grazioso. Um, the song could have a Spanish flair to it. Interestingly enough, we were talking about Berlioz admiring certain aspects of Italy. Well, Ravel admired certain aspects of Spain because this is a Spanish sounding selection. He was actually born near the border of where in France, but near the border of, of Spain. So it meant a lot to him, uh, the Basque region. And at the beginning of this, Alvarado del Gracioso has a Spanish flair to it, and it uh, foreshadows what's called a seguidilla, which is a, a Spanish dance, a traditional Spanish dance, usually on guitars. So the beginning of this piece starts with the string section, pizzicato, or plucking their strings. And when they all pluck all the different sections, the two violin sections, the viola, cello, bass, it can sound like a huge, huge guitar on stage. And that's how this starts. And it's it's a big buildup. It starts and it gets bigger and bigger and to a big climax and a big note. And then it's silent for a second. And then there's a wonderful big bassoon solo. And the Ravel doesn't say this, but some people tend to think, well, you know, bassoon can be a little comical at times, right? It can sound that way. And and this could be the gesture now talking or singing. And so the uh, there it's almost recitative like and the bassoon will have its solo by itself the orchestra will come in with a little dance a little waltz the bassoon comes back in and it goes back and forth three or four times and then the spanish uh pizzicato comes back in and this time with they use uh, the string players will use their bow but they'll bounce the bow it's controlled but it sounds uncontrolled a little bit to a certain rhythm and they bounce the bow and there's it, it another big climax and the brass comes in and it's a very just virtuosic piece. And um, that's the Ravel. So I'm curious about the bassoon solo. That's that's pretty special. You don't often get to hear a bassoon solo in a classical piece. So um, is it both bassoons or is it just the principal bassoon? It's the principal bassoon. And principal meaning the first player in the section, a composer will write for first, second, and however many bassoons or, or instruments they want in that section for that piece. And that, that reminds me of something, you know, some people may think, oh, we just put instruments together, whatever we want, and we just play uh, the piece. No, each composer has a specific instrumentation. They, they tell us exactly what's to be played and when and how and where. So it's not that we just choose our own instruments. It's that it's, it's like a recipe. Uh, it, this is what it's called for, and it's not going to taste as good if you follow. Now, the interpretation by the performers, that's where if you put a little extra salt here or you do this, or I, I substitute this for this, but you don't substitute instruments. That's, that's, that's a big no-no, yeah. Uh, but it's always done by the principal player when written for. In, the, in this case, it is the one bassoon principal. And then the third piece on the uh, first half, and it finishes the first half, is a piece called Dance of the Seven Veils from the opera Salome by Richard Strauss. And he's known predominantly for two things, tone poems, which are single movement orchestral pieces like his are Don Juan, 
Death and Transfiguration, Till Eulenspiegel. Uh, those are just to name a few. And he's also known for operas. He got so famous with these tone poems, he, he wanted to write more and more operas. And his most famous is perhaps the De Rosen Cavalier, which we did his, a suite of that a couple of years ago. And now we're doing a selection from another of his famous operas, Salome. And that does have to do with Salome from the Bible. And uh, in the biblical story, her stepfather, who's Herod, told her that she, he would give her anything she wanted if he would, she would dance for him. Well, she was infatuated with John the Baptist, and uh, she, she wanted him for herself. She liked his white-colored skin. This is how it's described in the, in the uh, or pale color compared to her and his dark black hair. And just to her, that's exotic. And he wanted nothing to do with her. He had a greater purpose, that is, John the Baptist, than, than, than Salome. So she devised this plan with her stepfather, and she does this dance for him. And it's very exotic. She's got the veils on, and she starts removing the veils. And you can see how that could cause some trouble. And it, it even did at the first premiere and, and of the opera itself uh, in Europe and then the Met in the United States. They did not want to have anything to do with that. Uh, it was very uh, divisive at the time. In fact, um, uh, the Kaiser of Germany at the time said that uh, he was worried about Salome and what it would do to Strauss's career. And of course, I think he was thinking how it would affect Germany too. But uh, Strauss replied and said, uh, the, the damage to my career, well, the damage enabled me to build my villa at Garmisch. So, so uh, he didn't fear that at all. That's just part of Strauss's personality. Uh, in the music, you, it does sound exotic, the intervals he used, and again, the orchestration. By the way, the orchestration is huge. Uh, this is a, when you go to the concert and look on stage, you'll see a very large orchestra, including a very, very large percussion section. And I know Laurie, when hiring musicians, had to hire more percussionists than we're used to. Usually we do with three or so uh, percussionists, and we were up to seven percussionists uh, with this, and, and in addition to our timpanists. And uh, why seven? Why more? Because there's more instruments on the stage, and they have to cover more, uh, more of these instruments. And this is a very large orchestra. When you come to the concert, look on stage, you'll see a very, very large orchestra. Yeah, one of the things I was excited about when I was hiring the musicians for this concert is the fact that we have seven percussionists, and that's really special. We typically have two to four percussionists plus our timpanist. So can you share with us, Clay, um, what all of the instruments are that the percussionists are going to be playing for this piece? Sure. So we have to have more percussionists because there are more instruments, but percussion se section is special because they, they play more than one instrument. They cover several instruments at the same time. But when the composer writes that all of these instruments play at the same time, they can't play them at the same time. So we need more players to cover, but you'll see a lot of instruments in the percussion section. Uh, of course, we have our normal timpani, the kettle drums, as you'll see, but Strauss calls for an additional small timpani. So it's smaller, meaning uh, it's a higher pitched. If it's smaller, it's going to be a higher pitched instrument. The tam-tam, which is 
like a big gong that's hung and then you hit on the side. The cymbals, crash cymbals, uh, the bass drum, the snare drum, a tambourine, a triangle. It's incidentally, the triangle is the loudest instrument in the orchestra. No matter, even if the entire orchestra is playing, you can always hear the, the triangle on top of that. The xylophone, uh, which is a mallet instrument, of course. Castanets, played on each, you know, you know, each hand with the fingers, right? Uh, and the glockenspiel, which is, in English, would be orchestra bells. It's also a mallet instrument. It's like a xylophone, but with metal bars, and it's very, very small. It just smell, It sounds like literally bells. Uh, also unusual, and Laurie had to hire both, is we have two harps for this piece. It calls for two, not just one. Uh, and that could be that Richard Strauss really wanted a wider range uh, in, in, within the harp, or when there are glissandos or smooth, long-running sections, he wanted it louder or doubled in the harp, uh, or things go so fast that one harp can play for a little bit, relax while the other one carries it, and it goes back and forth and makes it playable for the harps, things of that nature. Uh, I should mention, if we're talking instrumentation, that uh, the timpani, the, the double timpani is also in the Berlioz as well as the double harp in the Ravel. So as a music director, when you uh, program and you're hiring and paying musicians, you want to make sure they, pay, they play on several things so you're getting your money's worth. That's a little behind the scenes story. I don't know if I'm allowed to, to say that, but it's best use of your money, right? This is like a big buildup as well. Uh, there, it's so, the Salome starts slow and exotic and it starts to build up and it has a climax and it goes back to slow and then things get a little more aggressive. And there are sections in the piece where the woodwinds are have 16th notes coming down, like this. It's really the other women laughing at Salome because they can't believe what's happening, it's what she's doing. And there's a, a lot of picturesque things like that. But then it gets a little darker um, because as in the story, she dances and when she's done, Herod says, okay, I, you, did this, you did this to my satisfaction. What do you want? And Salome responds and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he actually does it. And then it gets a little creepy because she dances with the head on the platter all around and uh, kisses and, and all these things. And uh, at this point, Herod can't believe what he's seeing and it gets really dark and actually has her put to death because of it. So it's, it's not a happy ending, of course. <laughs> But the music itself is incredible. It's one of, to me, Strauss's masterpieces. Uh, he and Berlioz are just fantastic orchestrators. They know, they know how to use the orchestra. And then we have our final work, which is after intermission. And I'm so pleased to bring back, due to high demand, our soloist, Joyce Yang. Uh, one of my favorite soloists since my tenure with the orchestra. And um, she was here a few years ago. When was that, Lori? Um, she performed with us for our season finale in May of 2019. And she is also one of my all-time favorite guest artists. She is such a talented musician and also such a joy to work with. And um, I'm always a little apprehensive when 
the gas artists fly in and I go to get them at the airport. And I worry since I'm on the administrative side, what we're going to talk about and if they'll feel comfortable, um, you know, talking to me about the concert and the details. And this last time in 2019, when I picked Joyce up, I think she'd been in my car for about five minutes and I felt like I'd known her for years. She's so <laughs> much fun and just so, so engaging and her, her incredible personality and charisma really shines through in her performance. So she's just, she's always a fan favorite. Yes. It, it, she has such a command of the instrument that she's able to do that and put herself into the music. Uh, she's playing the Brahms first piano concerto. Brahms what wrote two piano concertos, and this is the first one. And it's not just playing Brahms for its own sake. Brahms would, you know, want to, you to state what he has to say, but I truly believe he would want the performer to say it in their way. Uh, the intentions of what he has to say, but with them coming through. It's it's just, it's impossible not to do. Just some people do it better than others. And she's able to put herself into the music. Um, this piece is a large work. The first three pieces, you know, anywhere from eight minutes, the shortest one, to 12 minutes, the, the longest. This one is big, 40, over, you know, 45 minutes over that a little bit. And it's, it's, uh, really the staple of the meal. The, this is the big thing of the meal. The others are the sides, perhaps. And um, it's in three movements. It's a faster movement and a slower movement and fast. And I just wanted to say briefly, that idea of fast, slow, fast goes all the way back to the history of the symphony orchestra, even before into to opera. When opera, everything comes from opera. Everything on the concert stage comes from opera. Uh, opera would always start with an overture just to, to start the, the evening. And the overture would always have three sections, a fast section, a slow section, and a fast section. Well, they got bigger and bigger and bigger each section until they started breaking off into their own movements of the fast movement, a slow movement, and fast movement. And that's what became known as a symphony, uh, which same idea in concerto, but a symphony would have three movements. And then the symphony added a movement, a, a fourth movement, but they put it in the third spot, the third position. That's what's called the minuet and trio. That's when you see that in the third movement. Anyways, we're dealing with three movements now, so I'll stick with that. Fast, slow, fast. And um, Brahms was really, throughout his life, considered the next Beethoven. After Beethoven, they were always trying to find who is the next Beethoven, because he was so monumental. <laughs> Just the music, the grand artistry, the, the personality. Well, more, more and more that Brahms wrote, they started to say he is. This was before he wrote any of his symphonies or any of his piano concertos. He was just writing smaller pieces at the time. And he actually waited and delayed to write some of these pieces because he was so intimidated by that title. He's, can you imagine being called the next Beethoven and then have to put out something and all they're going to do is compare the whole it's a time. Lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Well, and we've talked about before how Beethoven in many ways didn't follow the rules. He rewrote a lot of, uh, a lot of the rules. I know we've talked about that before on uh, several episodes. He did. And he did it in different ways. One way he did it and Brahms followed this to a degree, uh, 
he wrote more motives. It's hard to sing a big, long be- a, a melody of Beethoven. He wasn't about melody. It was more about a short motive and how to work that in within all of the music. Uh, you could sing a line of Beethoven, but it's not necessarily melodic. It may be the same note repeated with other things happening. Uh, Brahms was perhaps more melodic than that, only because of the time he lived. It was after Beethoven, and things were expanding into the Romantic era. Um, But being affected by Brahms, he didn't write as many piano concertos as Beethoven. Beethoven wrote five. Brahms wrote two. Beethoven wrote nine symphonies. Brahms wrote four. Well, I think part of it is he had to make sure these things stood up to what Beethoven wrote. Uh, but also the nature of the size of the piece itself. They're longer, they're bigger pieces than what Beethoven wrote, and overall in length. Uh, Orchestration's about the same, maybe bigger string sections at times. Um, But this first piano concerto, he wrote in 1858. Brahms lived 1833 to 1897. And of all the pieces that I mentioned, the two piano concertos and four symphonies, this is the first of all those. He didn't write his first symphony till 1876. Beethoven died, remember we said 1827. This is 1858 before the first, and he was born in 33. So yes, he he waited some. He just had to make sure he was trying to get it right. And this piece really didn't even start as a piano concerto. It started as a piece for two pianos, a sonata for two pianos. But it got so big, uh, it's almost like the two pianos couldn't handle it alone. So he started to put more instruments with it and make it bigger and it became a piano concerto. So piano and full orchestra. Now I consider both Brahms piano concertos, it is a piano concerto, but it's almost like a symphony with piano. It's it's that big. Now there are huge big solos. It truly is a piano concerto. I don't want to get called out on that. It's a piano concerto. But there's so much involvement with the, the symphony orchestra itself. It's I don't want to think that they're they're just background. They are predominant with the piano throughout a lot of this. Uh, the the first movement, the the tempo marking at the beginning beginning says maestoso, so it does have this big majestic feel, but it's it's a little bombastic. It's it's uh, long. There's a big drone at the bottom in the lower orchestra, and the melody in the upper. Uh, half of the orchestra playing, but it's in a darker range. It's upper register, but lower end of their register. And they have uh, these trills, uh, two notes that go fast together, you know, like this, throughout the melodic line and these little other fast notes called nachschlags that are separated. So it's it makes it sound a little menacing at times. And uh, I think once he writing, started writing this for two pianos, he wanted... Uh, the sound from an orchestra standpoint. And this goes on for a while, and the piano, of course, plays the theme after the orchestra does, just like a a normal concerto. And uh, It's a large-scale first movement. It's definitely well over 12 minutes or so alone. And then we get to the second movement, which is the slow movement, and it's a different world, totally peaceful. Uh, He wrote a letter to Clara Schumann, which was the wife of Robert Schumann, who he admired very much. In fact, uh, Brahms had a crush on Clara Schumann, and 
never acted on it or anything, but uh, it's it's documented, so we can say that. And he wrote this letter to her after Schumann Robert, that is, passed away, and he said, "I'm painting a gentle portrait of you." And he's talking about this second movement of of this this concerto. So it's very personal to him. Uh, yeah, beautiful tribute. Yeah, I mean he. Robert Schumann had died in 56, and like I said, this is 58. And um, so there is a, a devotional aspect to this music, uh, I think, to, to her, but also to the, he had said, going on the letter to the great masters of music before, um, and Clara had mentioned that this music has a spiritual level to it to her, maybe because it was personal, of course, too. But it's it's very reflective. It's beautiful. And then the last movement is a fast movement again. And it's like I had mentioned before, all music is, has to do with form. And this form is in, in a rondo. And a rondo alternates themes. It starts, let's say we call the first theme, theme A. And then you hear another theme, so we'll call it theme B. Then theme A will come back. In a rondo form, the theme comes back. So you have A, B, A, and then a new theme, C. Usually the A theme comes back between all these. So you'd have A, B, A, C, A. And then you could have B again, come back, and A, or just things of that nature. Now, I don't think the audience is thinking about just the form, perhaps, but you know, subconsciously, it helps us enjoy the music in its in its own right. And instead of just being totally new material throughout the whole piece, and you can't remember what happened before, and then you you think, is this the same piece? Even if you keep hearing just totally new stuff the whole time. So uh, Brahms was a huge master of that. Uh, of course, we said he's always compared to Beethoven, and in one of Beethoven's piano concertos, his third piano concerto, he uses this same rondo form. So there's always influence, all, all the time. Um, it, it's just a wonderful piece. It's, it's, so, it's a little darker than it is compared to the second piano concerto, but they're all, they are both grand in their own right. And it, uh, it, it, it does end with triumph. Uh, and I, I really look forward to working with Joyce. She played the Grieg Piano Concerto the last time she was with us, and it was just so remarkable and had such response by the audience and the orchestra that we thought we'd go even bigger scale this time and do this Brahms Piano Concerto. It's just a wonderful way to, to end our season. I can't wait for this season finale. It sounds like a fantastic way to celebrate the end of our 61st season. and um, also. Um, on April 4th, I wanted to mention that we'll be announcing our 23-24 season, and that's the same day that season tickets go on sale. So I'm really, really excited to share that with our patrons and um, can't wait for the season ahead. That's always a, a difficult transition as we wrap up one season, and yet we have a sneak preview of what's coming ahead. So it's a, it's a fun time of the year. It's been a uh, a really spectacular, exciting uh, season from the holiday concert to the jazz series to this finale that's upcoming. 
And another thing that we're excited about is um, we're going to have a special concert that's a collaboration with the Eisman Center, and we'll be announcing that in May. So um, we'll be excited to share the details of that collaboration with our audience in a future podcast. And that'll be in addition to our full season. That's right. Right. It's outside of our subscription series. That's correct. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, the Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at EismanCenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.